Chapter Five: Trials of a Traveling Musician. Life in the Clearings versus the Bush by Susanna Moody. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The man that hath not music in his soul. I will say no more. The quotation, though but too true, is too well known. But it will serve as the best illustration I can give to the various annoyances which beset the path of him who is musically inclined and whose soul is in unison with sweet sounds. This was my case. I loved music with all my heart and soul, and in order to give myself wholly up to my passion and claim a sort of moral right to enjoy it, I made it a profession. Few people have a better opportunity. Of becoming acquainted with the world than the travelling musician, yet such is the absorbing nature of his calling that few make use of it less. His nature is open, easy, and unsuspecting. Pleased with his profession, he hopes always to convey the same pleasure to his hearers. And though doubts will sometimes cross his mind, and the fear of ridicule make him awkward and nervous, yet upon the whole he is generally sure of making a favourable impression. On the simple-hearted and generous among his hearers, the musician moves among his fellow men as a sort of privileged person, for whoever suspects him of being a rogue, his first attempt to deceive would defeat its own object and prove him to be a mere pretender. His hand and voice must answer for his skill and form the only true test of his abilities. If tuneless and bad, the public will not fail to condemn him. The adventurers of the troubadours of old, if they were more full of sentiment and romance than the everyday occurrence that beset the path of the modern minstrel, were not more replete with odd chance and ludicrous incident. Take the following for an example of the many droll things which have happened to me during my travels. In the summer of 1846, I was making a professional tour through the United States and had advertised a concert for the ensuing evening at the small town of Blank, and was busy making the necessary arrangements when I was suddenly accosted, as I left the hotel, by a tall, thin, lackadaisical-looking man, of a most unmusical and unprepossessing appearance. How do ye do? I'm highly tickled to see you. I suppose you're going to give an extra sing here, ain't you? Yes, I intend giving a concert here this evening. Hum! How much do you ax to come in? This is, I want to say, what are you going to charge a ticket? Half a dollar, the usual price. How? Inclining his ears towards me, as if he doubted the soundness of the organ. Half a dollar, repeated I carelessly. Tis too much. You had better charge twenty-five cents. If you do, you'll have a pretty good house. If you make it twelve and a half cents, you'll have a smasher. If Mister, you'll lower that again to six and a quarter cents. You'll have to take a field. There ain't a house would hold 'em. After a pause, scratching his head and shuffling with his feet, I suppose you generally give the profession tickets. Sometimes. I'm a little in your line myself. Although I'm a shoemaker by trade, I leads the first Presbyterian choir upon the hill. I should like to have you come up if you stay long enough. As that is the case, perhaps you can tell me if I'm likely to have a good house tonight. I reckon as how you will. That is, if you don't charge too much. 
Where shall I get the best room? Well, I guess you had better try the old meetin' house. Thank you. Allow me, sir, to present you with a ticket. I now thought that I had got rid of him, and amply paid him for the information I had received. The ticket was for a single admission. He took it, turned it slowly around, held it close to his eyes, spelt it carefully over, then stared at me. What next? thought I. There's my wife. Well, I suppose she'd like to come in. You wish me to give you a double ticket? I don't care if you do. Again, turning the new ticket in his hand, and scratching his head more earnestly, he said, I've one of the smartest boys you ever seed. He's a first-rate ear for music. He can whistle any tune he hears right straight off. And there's my wife's sister a-stayin' with us just now. She's fond of music, too. Perhaps, said I, losing all patience, you would prefer a family ticket. Well, I'd be obliged. It don't cost you any, mister. And if we don't use it, I'll return it to-morrow. The stranger left me, and I saw no more of him until I spied him in the concert room with a family of ten or twelve. Presently another man and a dog arrived, says he to the doorkeeper, What's a going on in here? It's a concert, admission, half a dollar. I'm not a going to give a half a dollar to go in here. I hire a pew in this here church by the year, and I've a right to go in whenever the door's open. So in he went with his dog. The evening turned out very wet, and these people happened to form all my audience, and as I did not feel at all inclined to sing for their especial benefit, I returned to my lodgings. I learned from my doorkeeper the next morning that my friends waited for an hour and a half for my reappearance, which could not reasonably have been expected under existing circumstances. I thought I had got rid of the musical shoemaker for ever, but no such good luck. Before I was out of my bed, he paid me a visit. "'You will excuse my calling so early,' says he, "'but I was anxious to see you before you left town.' Wishing him at the bottom of the Mississippi, I put on my dressing-gown and slipped from my bed, whilst he continued his introductory address. "'I was very sorry that you had not a better attendance last night. I suppose that accounted for you leaving as you did. We were all kind or disappointed.' You'd have had a better house, only the people thought there was little humbug about this. And he handed me one of my programs. It is well known to most of my readers that in writing these bills the names of the composer generally follows the song, particularly in any very popular composition, such as Grand Introduction to Pianoforte, Henry Hertz, Life on the Ocean Wave, Henry Russell, Old English Gentleman, Melody by Mart Luther. Humbug, said I, attempting to take the bill, in order to see that no mistake had originated in the printing. But my tormentor held it fast. Look, said he, now where is Henry Hertz and Henry Russell? Where is he? And the old English gentleman, Martin Luther, what has become of him? The folks said that he was dead, but I didn't believe that, for I didn't think that you would have had the face to put his name in your bill if he was. Thus ended my acquaintance with the enlightened shoemaker of the Mississippi. I was travelling in one of the western canal boats the same summer, and was sauntering to and fro upon the deck, admiring the beauty of the country through which we were passing, when I observed a very tall, thin-laced, sharp-looking man regarding me with very fixed attention. Not knowing who or what he was, I was at last a little annoyed by the pertinency of this steady stare. 
it was evident that he meditated an attack upon me in some shape or other. Suddenly he came up to me, and extending his hand exclaimed, "'Why, Mr. H., is that you? I have not seen you since you gave your consort at N. It seems a tarnation long while ago. I thought perhaps you had got blowed up in one of those exploded steamboats. But here you are as large as life, and that's not over large neither.' glancing at the slight dimensions of my figure, and as ready to raise the wind as ever, I am highly gratified to meet with you, as I have one of the greatest songs you ever heard to show. If you can but set it to music, and sing it in New York City, it'll immortalize you, and immortalize me too. Amused at the earnestness with which the fellow spoke, I inquired the subject of his song. Oh, tis descriptive, tis tremendous, it will make a sensation all over the Union. But what is it about? Have you got it with you? No, no, mister, I never puts these things down on paper, lest other folks should find them and steal them. But I'll give you some idea of what it is. Look you, mister, I was going from Syracuse to Rochester on the canal boat. We met on our way a tremendous storm. The wind blew, and the rain came down like old sixty and everything looked as black as my hat, and the passengers got scared and wanted to get off, but the captain sung out, Whew! Let them go, Jem! And away we went at the rate of ten miles an hour, and they could not stop. By and by we struck a rock, and down we went. Indeed, said I, that's very unusual in a canal boat. Were any lives lost? No, but we were all dreadfully skeered and covered with mud. I sat down by the engine till I got dry, and then I wrote my poem. I will repeat what I can to you, and what I can't I will write off when I get home. Hold on, hold on, he continued, beating his forehead with the back of his head, as if to awaken the powers of memory. I have it now, I have it now. Tis tremendous. O oh Lord, who knowest the wants of man, guide my hand and guide my pen, and help me bring the truth to light of that dread scene and awful night. Ritu, ritu, ritu. There was Mr. Cadoga in years a bud, was found next morning in two feet mud. He strove, he strove, but all in vain. The more he got up, he fell down again. Ritu, ritu, ritu. The poet paused for a moment to gain breath, evidently overcome by the recollection of the awful scene. "'Is that not beautiful?' he exclaimed. "'What a fine effect you could give to that on a piano, "'humouring the keys to imitate his squabbling about in the mud. "'Let me tell you, mister, it would beat Russell's ship on fire all hollow.' "'Wiping the perspiration from his face, he recommenced. "'The passengers rushed unto the spot, together with the crew. "'We got him safe out of the mud.' But he had lost a shoe. Ritu, ritu, ritu. I could not listen to another line of this sublime effusion. The passenger who had gathered around us, drowning his nasal draw in a complete roar of laughter, seeing that I was as much infected as the rest, the poet turned to me with an air of offended dignity. I don't take the trouble, mister, to repeat any more of my poems to you, nor do I take it kind at all. You're laughing at me in that air way. But the truth is, you can't comprehend nor appreciate anything that is sublime or out of the common way, 
Besides, I don't think you could set it to music. It's not in you. But you can't fix it no how. This singular address renewed our mirth, and finding myself unable to control my inclination to laugh, and not wishing to hurt his feelings, I was about to leave him, when the man at the helm sung out, Bridge! The passengers lowered their heads to ensure their safety. All but my friend the poet, who was too much excited to notice the signal before he came in contact with the bridge, which sent him sprawling down the gangway. He picked himself up, clambered up the stairs, and began striding up and down the deck at a tremendous rate, casting from time to time indignant glances at me. I thought for my part that the man was not in his right senses, or that the blow he had received had so dulled his bump of caution that he could no longer take care of himself. For the next moment he stumbled over a little child, and would have been hurt severely if I had not broken his fall, by catching his arm before he again measured his length on the deck. My timely assistance mollified his anger, and he once more became friendly and confidential. "'Here, take this piece of poetry, Mr. H., and see if you can't set it to music. Mind you, it's none of mine, but, though not quite so good, it is summat in my style. I cut it out of a newspaper down east. You're welcome to it, he continued with a patronizing nod. That is, if you're able to do justice to the subject. I took the piece of dirty, crumpled newspaper from his hand, and, struck with the droll, quizzing humor of the lines, I have preserved them ever since. As I have never seen them before or since, I will give you them here. To the Falls of Niagara I wonder how long you've been roaring at this infernal rate. I wonder if all you've been pouring could be ciphered on a slate. I wonder how such a thundering sounded when all New York was woods. Suppose likely some injuns have been drowned when the rains have raised your floods. I wonder if wild stags and buffaloes have stood where I now stand. Well, Suppose being scared at first they'd stubbed their toes. I wonder where they'd land. I wonder if that rainbow has been shining since sunrise at creation, and this waterfall been undermining with constant spatteration. That Moses never mentioned ye, I've wondered, while other things describing. My conscience, how ye must have foamed and thundered when the deluge was subsiding. My thoughts are strange, magnificent and deep, when I look down on thee. Oh, what a glorious place for washing sheep Niagara would be! And oh, what a tremendous water-power is washed over its edge! One man might furnish all the world with flour, with a single privilege. I wonder how many times the lakes have all been emptied over here, why Clinton did not feed the Grand Canal up here, I think is queer. The thoughts are very strange that crowd my brain when I look up to thee. Such thoughts I never expect to have again, to all eternity. After reading the lines, I begged my friend to excuse me, as I wanted to go below and take a nap. I had not been long in the cabin before he followed me. To get rid of him, I pretended to be asleep. After passing me two or three times, and leaning over me in the most inquisitive manner, until his long nose nearly went into my eye, and humming a bow-wow tune in my ear to ascertain if I was really napping, 
He turned from me with a dissatisfied grunt, flung himself into a settee, and not long after was puffing and blowing like a porpoise. I was glad of the opportunity to go on deck again, and I left him alone in his glory. But while I was congratulating myself on my good fortune, I found him once more at my side. Good heavens, how I wished him at the bottom of the canal, when he commenced telling me some awful dream he had had. I was too much annoyed at being pestered with his company to listen to him, a circumstance I now rather regret, for had his dreams been equal to his poetry, they certainly must have possessed the rare merit of originality, and I could have gratified my readers with something entirely out of the common way. Turning abruptly from him, I entered into conversation with another gentleman, and quite forgot my eccentric friend until I retired for the night, when I found him waiting for me in the cabin. "'Ho, ho, mister, is that you? I was afeard we had put you ashore. What berth are you going to take?' I pointed to number four. "'Then,' said he, "'would you have any objection to my locating in the one above you, as I feel a little afeard? It is so awful dark out of doors.' and the clouds look tremendous black, as if they'd be a-pourin' all night. The reason why I prefer the upper berth is this, he continued confidently, if we should fall in with a storm, and all go to the bottom, I should have a better chance of saving myself. Mind you, if she should sink, I will give you half of my berth, if you'll come up. I thanked him for his offer, and not being at all apprehensive, I told him that I preferred staying where I was. Soon after I retired, hoping to sleep, but I had not calculated on the powers of annoyance possessed by my quondam friend. I had just laid myself comfortably down when I felt one of his huge feet on the side of my berth. Looking out, I espied him crawling up on all fours to his place of security for the night. His head had scarcely touched the pillow before he commenced telling me some long yarn but I begged him, in no very gentle tone, to hold on till the morning, as I had a very severe headache and wanted to go to sleep. I had fallen into a sort of doze, when I thought I heard someone talking in a low voice close to my ear. I started into a sitting posture and listened a moment. It was pitch dark, I could see nothing. I soon, however, discovered that the mysterious sounds proceeded from the berth above me, it was my friend reciting, either for my amusement or his own, the poem he had favoured me with in the morning. He was apparently nearly asleep, and he half-drawled, half-uttered sentences through his nose in the most ludicrous manner. He was recapitulating the disastrous condition of Mr. Cadoga. There was Mr. Cadoga in years abud, next morning two feet mud. He strove, he but in vain. The more he fell down, he got up again. Ritu, ritu. Here followed a tremendous snore, and I burst into a prolonged fit of laughter, which fortunately did not put a stop to the sonorous bass of my companion overhead, whose snoring I considered far more tolerable than his conversation. Just at this moment the boat struck the bank, which it frequently does of a very dark night, which gave the vessel such a shock that it broke the cords that secured the poet's bed to the beam above. And down he came, head foremost, to the floor. This accident occasioned me no small discomfort, as he nearly took my berth with him. 
It was fortunate for me that I was awake, or he might have killed me in his descent. As it was, I had only time to throw myself back when he rushed past me with the speed of an avalanche, carrying bed and bedclothes with him in one confused heap, and there he lay upon the floor, rolling and roaring like some wild beast caught in a net. "'Oh, dear, oh, dear, I wonder where I is. What a tremendous storm! What a dreadful night! Not a soul can be saved. I knew it. I dreamt it all. Oh, Lord, we shall all go to the bottom and find eternity there. Captain, Captain, where be we?' Here a child, belonging to one of the passengers, awakened by his bellowing, began to cry. "'Oh, dear, someone else sinking. Captain, Captain, confound him. I suppose he's drowned like the rest. Thank heaven. Here's something to hold on to, to keep me from sinking.' and clutching at the table in the dark, he upset it, and broke the large lamp that had been left upon it. Down came the broken glass upon him in a shower, in which, doubtless, he took for the waves breaking over him, for he raised such a clatter with his hands and feet, and uttered such a doleful screams, that the passengers started simultaneously from their sleep. "'What's the matter? Is that man mad or drunk?' exclaimed several voices. The gentleman beneath the bedclothes again groaned forth. "'We are all lost. If I once get upon dry land, you'll never catch me in a canal-boat again.' Pitying his distress, I got up, groped my way to the steward's berth, and succeeded in procuring a light. When I returned to the cabin, I found the poet lying on the floor with the table upon him, and he holding it fast with both hands, crying vehemently, "'I will never let go. I will hang on to the last.' "'You are dreaming,' said I. "'Come, get up. The cords of your bed were not strong enough to hold you, and you have got a tumble on to the floor. Nothing else is the matter with you.' As I ceased speaking, the vessel again struck the bank, and my friend, in his eagerness to save himself, upset me, light and all. I again upset all the small pieces of furniture in my reach, to the great amusement of the passengers, who were sitting up in their berths, listening to and laughing at our conversation. We were all once more in the dark, and I can assure my readers that my situation was everything but comfortable, as the eccentric gentleman had hold of both my legs. "'You foolish fellow!' cried I, kicking with all my might to free myself. "'There is no harm done. The boat has only struck again upon the bank.' "'Where is the bank?' said he, still labouring under the delusion that he was in the water. "'Give me a hold of it. If I can only get on the bank I shall be safe.' Finding it impossible to convince him how matters really stood, I left him to unroll himself to his full dimensions on the floor, and, groping my way to a sofa, laid myself down once more to sleep. When the passengers met me at the breakfast-table, the poor poet and his misfortunes during the night gave rise to much quizzing and merriment, particularly when he made his appearance with a black eye, and the skin rubbed off the tip of his nose. One gentleman who was most active in teasing him, cried out to me, "'Mr. H., do try and set last night's adventure to music, and sing them this evening at your concert. They would make a tremendous sensation, I assure you.' The poet looked daggers at us, and seizing his carpet-bag, sprang to the deck, and from the deck to the shore, which he fortunately reached in safety, without casting a parting glance at his tormentors. THE MOUNTAIN AIR Rave not to me of your sparkling wine, Bid not for me the goblet shine, My soul is a thirst for a draught more rare, A gush of the pure fresh mountain air. It wafts on its currents the rich perfume 
Of the purple heath and the honeyed broom, The golden firs and the hawthorn fair, Shed all their sweets to the mountain air. It plays round the bank and the mossy stone, Where the violet droops like a nun alone, Shrouding her eyes from the noontide glare, But breathing her soul to the mountain air. It gives to my spirits a tone of mirth, I bound with joy o'er the new-dressed earth, When spring has scattered her blossoms there, And laden with balm the mountain air. From nature's fountain my nectar flows, Tis the essence of each sweet bud that blows, Then come, and with me the banquet share, Let us breathe together the mountain air. End of chapter 5